certain movies, whether you want to call them the movies, the movie set, the actors, the subject matter, most likely, uh, which have been considered either cursed, jinxed, whatever the case might be. All right. And sometimes some of these things are happening while the film is being uh, produced. But other times it's almost like in retrospect that people looking back say, wow, that was really odd how many people or, you know, bad, uh, you know, had bad things happen to them, including dying or things happen on the set. In other words, it takes a few years for somebody to look back and say, wait a minute, the odds here are a little bit stacked uh, against this happening to so many people at the same time. Now, the, uh, the first one that I'm going to go into, this is a film I had never heard about. And in a way, this was kind of an obscure film. And it came out in 1966, all right, which, by the way, uh, this is around the time that a lot of the, the films started to get, like, kind of really, really dark. Uh, and, I mean, as far as, you know, up to then, during the 60s, every, everybody remembers all the Hammer films with Christopher Lee and the Dracula and all this and Peter Cushing and the Bloodshot Eyes. But then all of a sudden, you I, you start seeing a lot of the subject matter in a lot of, especially, as a matter of fact, it overlapped with um, with even the Dracula movies where they start to overlap into Satanism, devil worship, etc., etc. Now, the, uh, the like I said, the first film is called Incubus, all right? And uh, basically what's referred to it is The Curse of the Black Goat. Incubus was a 1966 American horror film starring soon-to-be Captain Kirk William Shatner. However, its claim to fame has more to do with a streak of misfortune that struck many that were involved in the film. It was directed by Leslie Stevens, who created The Outer Limits, and shot in black and white. The actors spoke their lines in the constructed language Esperanto to create an otherworldly feeling. The plot surrounds the efforts of succubus and incubus to lead human souls into perdition. Even in the 1960s, it was considered an underground film, and perhaps many were unaware of the curse that would nip at the heels of those involved in its production. The setting is a small village named Nomentum during a lunar eclipse. There are two succubus sisters, Kia, played by Allison Ames, and Amael, played by Eloise Hart. Kia determines to seduce an innocent or clean soul. The intended victim is William Shatner's character, a wounded soldier. At the end of the film, the question is, does purity overcome corruption? The incubus was played by Yugoslavian Milos Milos, born Milos Milosovic, who was a stunt double and bodyguard for actor Alain Delon. He was the first to suffer the consequences of working in the film. In 1965, while still married to Cynthia Buron, Milos started an affair with actress Carolyn Mitchell, born Barbara Ann Thomason, who was estranged from her husband, actor Mickey Rooney. Shortly after the release of Incubus, in February of 1966, Barbara Thomason Rooney, 29, and Milos, 25, were found dead in the bathroom of the home she once shared with Mickey Rooney and their four children. The police believed it was a murder-suicide spurred by Milo's belief that Barbara was seeking to reconcile with Mickey. During the incident, Rooney was at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, recovering from an intestinal infection he caught in the Philippines while filming Ambush Bay. The story was that Rooney had returned from the Philippines in December to find that his estranged wife had taken up with Milo's, who had been a friend of the family for a year. A week before the incident, Rooney had filed for divorce, the day of the murder, Mickey and Barbara met at the hospital and Rooney tried to convince her to resume their marriage and she agreed to stop seeing Milos. They had married in 1960. Milos' wife Cynthia had already filed for divorce, charging him with assault. 
Initially, Milosevic agreed to end the relationship. He then took Barbara into the master bedroom and locked the door. This was the last time either was seen alive. The next day, a house guest unlocked the bedroom door and found Barbara Rooney shot through the jaw. Milo's body was on top of hers. He had a bullet hole through his temple. Afterwards, official inquiry found that Milo's had shot Thompson with Rooney's chrome-plated 38 caliber revolver. Rumors swirled that Rooney was the one who killed them both in revenge for the betrayal. This was Rooney's fifth marriage. In a strange twist, it appeared that being Alain Delon's bodyguard came with its own run of bad luck. Stevan Markovic, who was Delon's bodyguard, was found murdered in a Paris rubbish dump in 1969. The police investigation disclosed allegations of sex parties involving Delon and other French government officials. In 1969, the BBC interviewed Delon about what became known as the Markovic Affair. The reporter asked him, People once more don't say it straight to your face, but they suggest very, very strong that you have homosexual tastes. Delon answered, So what's wrong if I had? Or I did. Would I be guilty of something? If I like it, I'll do it. We have a great actor in France named Michel Simon, and Michel Simon said once, If you like your goat, make love with your goat. But the only matter is to love. Ironically, Alain Delon was considered a screen sex symbol during the 1960s and 1970s, and there's a strange tie into a goat which figures prominently in the film of Incubus. Now, getting back to the Incubus curse. Shortly after the release of the film, Leslie Stevens' production company went bankrupt. He was married to Allison Ames, and they divorced. Shatner's sister in the film was raped by a goat, which is the Incubus in disguise as played by actress Alan Atmar. She committed suicide in October of 1966. Then in 1968, Marina Habe, 17, the daughter of another actress in the film, Eloise Hart, was viciously murdered. Her body was found dumped off Mulholland Drive. The killers were never found. Some believe she was the victim of members of the Manson family. A year later, Sharon Tate and her unborn child would be murdered by the Manson family. She had attended the premiere of Incubus with her husband, Roman Polanski. The film, thought to be lost, was found in France in 1996 with French subtitles at Cinématique Française. Some were spared from the dark shadow cast by Incubus. Shatner would go on to become one of Hollywood's most recognizable characters. Cinematographer Conrad Hall would go on to win three Academy Awards for his work on Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid, American Beauty, and Road to Perdition. In his book Shatner Rules, Shatner described that a few months after the end of filming, he was in a makeup chair for Star Trek when a rock came crashing through the trailer window. He found a note attached to it, which read, Your next Shatner, the Esperantist. I said they were angry because they had not been consulted during the course of the film and ticked off they were excluded from the premiere. They had also asked for autographs from Shatner and the request had been ignored. So they decided to curse Incubus and anyone who laid eyes on the film. Shatner writes that he destroyed every copy of the movie he came across. Something like that movie The Ring? Dun, dun, dun. All right, then we go on to, of course, everyone knows about The Exorcist. And um, there was things going on during the filming. Uh, when do disturbing coincidences fail to explain a pattern that bring only one word to mind, a curse? What if you're working on the set of what turns out to be one of the most chilling movie produced that had the devil as the main villain? These are just some of the so-called accidents that almost 50 years in retrospect plague the film set. The Exorcist. In 1973, The Exorcist was released. 
Linda Blair was cast as 12-year-old Regan, and she recalls a series of unsettling incidents that occurred on the set to actors or behind-the-scene personnel. Halfway through the film, a fire destroyed much of the set, except the part of Linda Blair's bedroom, where the major portion of Regan's possession was filmed. Linda Blair was later to learn that certain disturbing incidents were kept from her in order that she should not be frightened. Ellen Burstein, who herself suffered an accident during the film, claimed that there were several other people involved in the film that died. People eventually, people die eventually, but what are the odds that so many had ties to a particular film in one way or another? Jack McGowan played Burke Dennings, the alcoholic director. One week after completing his work on the film, he died from a heart attack that started out as a case of the flu. Vasiliki Maliros, who played Father Damien's mother, died from natural cause at the age of 89 when the film was still in post-production. During filming, Max von Sydow, brother, and Linda Blair's grandfather died. Jason Miller, who played Father Karras, was stunned to find out that his son Jordan was hit by a motorcyclist who appeared out of nowhere on an empty beach. It wasn't just actors or extras, but anyone who had some contact with the production. In New York, one of the carpenters accidentally cut off his thumb, and one of the lighting technicians lost a toe while working on the set. The man who refrigerated the studio, keeping it abnormally cold during the shooting, died. The assistant cameraman's wife had a baby that died. The janitor who took care of the building was shot and killed. Friedkin asked two priests who were hired as technical advisors, one who was hired as a technical advisor, to bless the set. This stopped all the sinister experiences, but around the time, a fire broke out in the Jesuit residence in Georgetown. Mercedes McCambridge was the voice of the demon. In November 1987, her son John Markle shot his wife and two daughters after being accused of fraud. According to the Chicago Tribune, he then went on to a study, shot himself in the temple. Next to his body, authorities found a white rubber old man mask. Nightmare on Elm Street was in the VCR, and later was discovered he had used three different guns for the slaying. The Little Rock Police Department would discover that Markle had been fired the previous Friday, which was Friday the 13th, for a sophisticated embezzlement scheme that benefited Markle's mother, Academy Award-winning actress Mercedes McCambridge. In his suicide note, he blamed his mother for his decision in killing his family and himself. He cited her two suicide attempts, drinking and failed marriages, and mostly her lack of love for him. The letter contained the following, quote, Initially you said, well, we can work it out, but no. You refused. You called me a liar, a cheat, a criminal, a bum. You said I ruined your life. You were never around much when I needed you. So now I and my whole family are dead, so you can have the money. What better place for a serial killer than a film about the devil? Paul Bateson was an x-ray tech at NYU Medical Center who played an extra in the film as what else? An x-ray technician. Starting in 1975, this is two years after The Exorcist completed, by the way, several bodies of unidentified gay men had been found dismembered, placed in bags, and tossed into the Hudson River. The only clue police had was their clothing came from a shop in Greenwich Village that catered to the leather subculture. In September 1977, Addison Barrill, a reporter, was found murdered in his apartment. The police had no suspects. Village Voice journalist Arthur Bell wrote a piece about the crime. And he received a call from a man who said he'd met, quote, Viril at Badlands, a gay bar in Christopher Street, where they partied until 3 a.m. After that, they stopped at a gay BDSM club called Mineshaft before heading to a real studio apartment. 
A few days later, Bell received a call from another mystery man who told them Muriel's murderer was Bateson. Bateson was part of the SNM and leather subculture of Greenwich Village. He was an alcoholic, drinking at least a quart of vodka a day, which made it difficult to hold down a job. He was fired from the hospital where he worked at when he was hired to work on the film. On March 5, 1979, Paul Bateson was found guilty of murdering Addison Burrill, who he stabbed and bludgeoned with an iron skillet. The prosecution attempted to connect Bateson to what was then known as the bag murders, but were unable to do so even though he did brag about committing them while serving his prison term. He said he'd done it for fun. Unable to prosecute him for the crimes, detectives were convinced of his guilt. These events inspired the movie Cruising, which technically remains unsolved. He was sentenced to a term of 20 years to life in prison to be served at Rikers Island. He was released in 2004. He is now said to live somewhere in upstate New York. Coincidentally or not, these crimes were committed after he worked on the Exorcist film. William Peeler Blatty, who wrote the novel, The Exorcist, based it on a true story of a 14-year-old boy from St. Louis who underwent an exorcism in 1949. The identity of the boy was recently confirmed. He was Ronald Edwin Hunkler, who passed away in 2020. He worked 40 years for NASA as an engineer. And this is Ronald Hunkler's story. And he was part of the Exorcist film, even if it was behind the scene, you know, because basically it was a newspaper article written about his exorcism that was what inspired Blatty to go on and write the book and so on and so forth. And he's got an interesting story on his own. Now, what are the odds that a boy exercised by Jesuits in 1949 would grow up to work for NASA? Many people keep secrets, especially from childhood. But Ronald Edwin Hunkler's was unique. He was the boy that inspired the novel The Exorcist, written by William Peter Blatty and released as a film in 1973. In order to protect his identity, the teenage boy was referred to as Robbie Mannheim, or Roland Doe, by the Jesuit priest who exorcised him. A handful of lay people knew the real name of the boy who endured a series of exorcism in 1949. In 1973, the exorcist movie filled up Catholic churches and confessionals with parishioners who had not set foot inside one for years, all but driven by the fear their soul would be stolen by Satan. However, by the time the film was released, Ronald Edwin Hunkler worked as an engineer at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. He patented technology to help protect the space shuttle from extreme heat. In 2001, he retired after 40 years at the agency, guarding the secret of his experience as a teenager. He died on May 10, 2020, just three weeks shy of his 86th birthday. The following is an excerpt from the 1949 article that inspired William Peter Blatty to write The Exorcist. Blatty was 20 years old and an English major at Georgetown University. And this was this uh, article was uh, written by Bill Brinkley at the Washington Post, and it was titled "Priest Frees Mount Rainier Boy Reported Held in Devil's Grip." In what is perhaps one of the most remarkable experiences of its kind in recent religious history, a 14-year-old Mount Rainier boy has been freed by a Catholic priest of possession by the devil. Catholic sources reported yesterday, only after between 20 and 30 performances of the ancient ritual of exorcism. Here and in St. Louis was a devil finally cast out of the boy, it was said. In all except the last of these, the boy broke into a violent tantrum of screaming, cursing, and voicing of Latin phrases, a language he had never studied, whenever the priest reached the climatic point of the ritual, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that cast thee the devil out. 
In complete devotion to his task, the priest stayed with the boy over a period of two months, during which he said he personally witnessed such manifestations as the bed in which the boy was sleeping suddenly moving across the room. A Washington Protestant minister had previously reported personally witnessing similar manifestations, including one in which the pallet on which the sleeping boy lay slid slowly across the floor until the boy, boy's head bumped against the bed, awakening him. The boy was taken to Georgetown University Hospital, where his affliction was exhaustively studied, and to St. Louis University, both are Jesuit institutions. The ritual was undertaken by a St. Louis priest, a Jesuit in his 50s, who devoted himself to the task through prayers and fasting. The ritual began in St. Louis, continued here, and finally ended in St. Louis. For two months, the priest stayed with a boy, accompanying him back and forth on the train, sleeping in the same house and sometimes in the same room with him. Repeatedly, each time the ritual was performed, the final violent reaction would come from the boy when the words were spoken, I cast thee out. A reaction of profanity and screaming and the astounding use of Latin phrases, the priest was reported as saying. In one manifestation, the boy reported that he had seen a vision of St. Michael casting out the devil. All right, and for those of you watching the video, that right there with the X, that's Hunkler, okay, in a photograph. Seems very normal, doesn't he? Hunkler was born June 1st, 1935, to a Lutheran mother and a non-practicing Catholic father. His father was 35 years old and his mother 32. Their names were Edwin Hunkler and Odell Kapage. By the way, when I say his father was 35 and 32, that's how old they were when he was born. He was an only child as there's no mention of any other child. And and, and the reason why I'm going to mention later on why that comes into play, that the only child of maybe, not old parents, but older parents, why maybe they put up with a lot of stuff. Now, he lived with his parents and a paternal German-speaking grandmother at a house located at 41 Central Avenue, Cottage City, Maryland. The address was changed to 3807 40th Avenue in the early 1940s. The Hunklers lived there from 1949 to 1958. On January 26, 1949, Matilda Hendricks' knee Hunkler, 54, referred to as Aunt Tilly, died of multiple sclerosis. She was deeply immersed in spiritualism and used a Ouija board with her nephew. Mrs. Hunkler thought her sister-in-law's spirit was behind the manifestations. Mar Mark Obstasnik, who wrote... The book, The Real Story Behind the Exorcist, interviewed one of Ronald Hunkler's neighborhood friends, who discussed the matter only if his name was withheld. He was referred to as J.C. He stated, No, I don't think he was ever possessed. I think it was psychological. As far as any real possession or anything like that, I don't think so. There's some interesting psychological aspects to it. There were German Lutherans, and he was an only child, and I think the grandmother is actually the central figure. She played a very influential role in all of this. You had this old world religion superstition, and the mother got caught up in it, and the father just kind of stayed in the background. I think he could see what was going on, which is why he is never mentioned. The true story is much more intriguing from a psychological point of view. The basis of the real thing could be a damn good story, no doubt about it in my mind. The rest of it, I can run a parallel. You had these two mischief makers that had a strong tendency to take advantage of people who were weaker than themselves. They were a pair of connivers and they had their act down. In pairs like that, they compete with each other, and they don't get along well, and they have to keep doing something to retain their relationship, and all the time, this is mischief in one form or another. They were trying to outdo each other. 
which leads me to believe that who they're talking about is the grandmother and her grandson. Obsasnik also interviewed B.C., J.C.'s brother, who was Hunkler's best friend for many years. He described Ronald as living with a fanatically religious mother and a grandmother who believed in spiritualism. Ronald was disliked by his classmates. It was known to throw tantrums. He displayed violent tendencies and exhibited sadistic behavior towards animal and people. These were personality traits that predated his so-called possession. B.C. said, quote, People ask what he was like back then, and I can tell you that he was never what you would call a normal child. He was an only child and kind of spoiled, and he was a mean bastard. We were together all the time, and we used to fight all the time. According to Dr. Alvin Kagi, who attended school with Hunkler, he described him as withdrawn, unpopular, and not very athletic. J.C. described Hunkler's last day at school in 1949. We were in a class together at Bladensburg Junior High. He was sitting in a chair, and it was one of those deals with one arm attached, and it looked like he was shaking the desk. The desk was shaking and vibrating extremely fast, and I remember the teacher yelling at him to stop it, and I remember he kind of yelled, I'm not doing it, and they took him out of the class, and that was the last I ever saw of him in school. The desk certainly did not move around the room like that. Book Possessed said, it was just shaking. I don't know if he was doing it or what was going or what was doing it because I just can't clear it in my mind. He went on to describe his own interaction with Hunkler. There was this dog that ran around the neighborhood at that time. It was a half-bred Cocker Spaniel, and it looked like it was half chow. This dog was mean, and nobody ever knew who owned it. It just came out of nowhere. Well, Ron basically adopted the dog. That dog was really his best friend, not me. The dog hated everyone, and everything would bite anyone in sight, but he loved Ron. Ron would feed it and bring it in the house with him. One time he called me up and told me to come over, and I never really trusted him because he was sneaky and a real mean little bastard. I was going over there, and he was looking out from the basement window, and when I got to his house, I heard the back porch door slam, and I knew right away what he'd done. He'd done this sort of thing many times before to different kids. I started running like hell because he'd sick that dog on me. When I got home, he called me up and was laughing like hell. That's what kind of person he was. He did that all the time. Father Edwin Hughes, who passed away in 1980, was an assistant pastor at St. James Church in Mount Rainier, Maryland, in 1949. It's believed Mrs. Hunkler took her son in February to see him. It's claimed that after an initial session, Father Hughes sent the boy to Georgetown University Hospital, where three days of exorcisms were performed. There's controversy as to whether it's true that Hughes was injured during one of the exorcisms. Ronald Edwin Hunkler was admitted to Georgetown University Hospital under his real name on the morning of Monday, February 28, 1949, and released at 12 noon on Thursday, March 3, 1949. By then, Reverend Luther Schultz, a Protestant minister, had been sought out by the family. However, when things grew worse, he referred them to the Jesuit priest in St. Louis. Doctors had already been consulted regarding Ronald's condition, but it seems they could offer no explanation or remedy either. According to Frank Bober, Father Hughes' assistant pastor, it was Mrs. Hunkler who sought out the clergy for help. He said, Father Hughes never went to the boy's home. Basically, it was the mother that brought the kid to the rectory, and the thing is, she's the only one who gave Father Hughes all the information. Everything that I know of that he shared with me took place in the rectory, not at the house. Father Hughes told them that the Hunkler boy had a dark stare, almost as if there was nothing behind the eyes. Bober said that Hughes felt an unseen force pressing him against the wall. 
Father William Bowdern was brought in to perform more than 20 exorcisms on Roland over a period of two months. He was assisted by Father Hughes, Father Walter Halloran, and Father Raymond Bishop. Bishop kept the diary that Blatty would use when writing his novel, and that would be reprinted in Thomas Allen's book, Possessed. The following is Father Bishop's diary entry for Easter Sunday, April 17th, or refers to Ronald Hunkler. Father Whitman, hospital chaplain, made three unsuccessful attempts to give R. Holy Communion in his room. After some waiting and slapping of R., the fourth attempt succeeded. Brother Theophane, who was on nurse duty in R.'s room, was reading the office of the Blessed Virgin. It was about 6.45 a.m. when he came to the Regina Kelly. R. jumped out of bed, then grabbed the office book from the brother and reached for the scapular from the brother's habit, which was placed on a nearby chair. R. fought and spit at the brother and trampled the scapular underfoot in an Indian war dance. The devil said, I will not let him go to Mass. Everyone thinks it will be good for him. It was impossible to get R to the chapel because of his frequent seizures. Father Bowden was called to the hospital, and shortly after his arrival, the spell was broken. There was no further reaction until evening. In the evening, R was spending a little time with the brothers at blank outside the hospital. Brother Emmett was escorting R back to the basement floor of the hospital when R went into a fighting spell. The brother was alone and shouted for help, but it was some time before the other brothers heard. Brother Emmett was quite exhausted from the struggle. R was carried into the elevator and placed in his fifth room floor. The fathers immediately began the prayers of exorcism, and the usual indications of violence continued. The blank showed his power again by saying that he would have R awaken and ask for a knife. He had threatened to kill those who molested him while he was in a seizure. When R came out of the spell, he asked for a knife so that he might cut an Easter egg. A little later, the devil said they would have R awaken and ask for a drink of water, and R carried out the plan. There was no response to the precipio, except taunting remarks to the exorcist. Everyone, including R, was becoming weary of the long performance. R did not begin to sleep until midnight. The fathers left the hospital at 12.45 p.m. In 1949, Brother Rector Cornelius sealed the fifth floor corridor, which hosted the exorcism, after having the statue of St. Michael removed. The room and the existence of a copy of the diary, along with a note from the Cornelius, date April 29, 1949, remained locked away until the demolition of the old wing in the hospital. In October 1978, workmen clearing out furniture stored in the old wing of the Alexiam Brothers Hospital that hosted the exorcism in St. Louis allegedly discovered the official record of the events, which confirmed that Father Bowden and Halloran had performed the exorcism over four nights in 1949. Father Walter Halloran was willing to discuss what happened in 1949. He said, I can't go on record. I never made an absolute statement about the things because I didn't feel I was qualified. I hadn't studied the phenomena and that sort of thing. All I did was report the things that I saw and whether I would make a statement one way or another wouldn't make any difference. As to whether Hunkler spoke in other languages, he said, quote, just Latin. I think he mimicked us. He went on to clarify there were no demonic changes in the boy's voice and that when Hunkler struck him, it was with normal strength. However, unexplained events did occur, he said. I saw a bottle slide from a dresser across the room. There was no one near it. The bed moving. It was on rollers like any bed, but I was leaning on it when it moved one time. But contrary to the movie, Hunkler did not vomit or urinate, and there was no markings on his skin. The Alexiam Brothers Hospital, where Ronald was taken to, served as an insane asylum as well. It received its first patient in 1870. 
In 1909, it became affiliated with St. Louis University and it admitted only male patients. However, men, women, and children were seen on an outpatient basis. They operated a training school for male nurses from 1928 until 1952. In 1902, a priest who was taking treatment at the hospital hung himself on the premises. Hunkler's female version, Hunkler's female companion, told newspapers that he died after suffering a stroke at his home in Marriottsville, Maryland. He was cremated, but none of his children attended his funeral. His two daughters and a son had been estranged from him for a long time. She said that he never believed that he had been possessed and shunned religion as an adult. He lived in fear that his identity would be discovered. And she said he had a terrible life from worry, worry, worry. They would leave the house on Halloween in case someone had discovered he was the haunted boy and its anonymity would be over. She said, he said he wasn't possessed, it was all concocted. He said, I was just a bad boy. However, there was an unusual event that occurred not long before Hunkler died. A Catholic priest came to him to administer last rites. His companion had not contacted any church. I have no idea how the father knew to come, she said, but he got Ron to heaven. Ron's in heaven and he's with God now. And you know what? That's very interesting because was he, did he have a behavior disorder? Was the devil in control of him? Because again, and this is something, as you can see, where they took him for his exorcism, the Alexian Hospital already dealt with um, the mentally ill. So you would think that they would be very uh, well-versed in recognizing somebody that had a mental problem. But they still went ahead and exercised him. I don't know. Was he, you know, and, and apparently they, they had to do this for quite a lot of days. So you, you ask yourself, was Ronald really possessed? Was Ronald just a BS artist? He was extremely intelligent. He went on to become a NASA engineer and developed a product to shield the, the shuttle from re-entry heat. And or was he possessed and he just learned how to keep low level? Because according to what his quasi-friend said from his childhood, he was not a nice kid at all. Okay, then we go on to another film that came out like maybe a couple of years after The, the Exorcist because... Of course, Hollywood saw how much money everybody made, so they jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. 
the many years, more than two centuries in which European universities and academics have stated that Egypt is Caucasoid or it is it is Semitic or Hamitic or Afro-Semitic or Afro-Hamitic. Eventually, they invited Sheikh Antediop and Theophilo Benga. This is the first time at any international conference on an intellectual matter that Africans are invited up to deal with their own story. Theophilo Obenga, he, he, he wrote me last week. This is the first time I'm hearing from him because apparently Diop left a lot of papers after he died. And so several people in France and French-speaking Africa suddenly become aware of the journal for the first time. Theophil Obenga is uh, an expert on Bantu. He's head of the Bantu Research Institute in, in Brazzaville. Um, he's a great linguist like Diop. And they appeared at this conference. Everybody else was European or Arab from the Arab Republic of Egypt. And at this conference, everybody came unprepared except the two Africans. Could you imagine that? This is a conference meeting, an academic conference meeting to discuss the peopling of Egypt. And these guys arrived empty-handed, talking from their heads. The Africans arrived with heavily researched papers. The linguistic evidence of Diop was so startling that everyone had to admit this is one of the, the, the revolutionary things that Diop and Obenga, particularly Diop, had proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that Egyptian language was not Semitic or Hamitic, it was African. But there is where the agreement ended because when Diop tried to show that not only the language was African, but that the people were African. Everybody got upset. And those people who couldn't say that it is not so, they said, we mustn't talk about race anymore. We are all human beings here. Let's stop talking about race. So let me read you the passage from my introduction, which deals with this. A summary of this conference is of interest and value to readers since it reveals the state of Egyptology at the moment and the defensive reaction to the question of blackness or Negroness. Professor Galab of the Arab Republic of Egypt declared that the human race during the Paleolithic era, which is the Stone Age, was more or less homogeneous and Caucasian meaning to say all human beings were first white. This is, the, this, is the, this is an Egyptian, you know. And that Negroes only began to appear much later. A Negro culture, he claimed, did not appear prior to the Neolithic, that is the age of agriculture. Professor De Bono of Malta spoke of a race of pyramid builders coming into Egypt, a race with Lydico-Asiatic affinities, without even deeming it necessary to show where on this earth stands the proto-pyramid that this race constructed before it migrated to Africa. How could you have a race of pyramid builders who never built pyramids anywhere else? Several participants, finding it difficult to demolish the op, decided instead to demolish all talk about race. Professor Sav Soderberg of Sweden, while demonstrating that the majority of Neolithic cultures in the Nile Valley belong to techno-complex of Saharan and Sudanic cultures, said the concept of race was outmoded and should now be abandoned. After he showed that the technology of the early Egyptians is Sudanic and Saharan, which is African, he said, don't talk about race. 
Race must, races are outmoded must be abandoned. Professor Farcuta France, insisting that there was no way to tell how many Egyptians were white and how many were black, felt the evidence nevertheless showed that Egypt at least was African in its way of writing, its culture, and its way of thinking. Now just imagine that. You can't tell how many white people are there, yet everything they're doing is African. In other words, they're white Africans. These white Africans, their language, you said, is African. Their culture is African. Their science is African. And yet you can't tell whether they're white or black. Professor Shinny of Canada said that Herodotus and all the Greeks and Romans who called Egyptians black were merely being subjective like Dr. Diop. Race was not a scientific concept. Oh, no. Professor Mokhtar of the Arab Republic of Egypt said the problem of race was unimportant. Professor Abdullah of the Sudan, after chiding Diop for adopting an Africanist approach to this problem, went on boldly to assert that the Egyptian language belonged to the family of proto-Semitic languages and that there was abundant evidence to prove it. He had not come to the conference, however, with his abundant evidence. This, in fact, was one of the remarkable revelations of this international conference. In its final report, UNESCO pointed out, quote, listen to this. Although the preparatory working paper set out by UNESCO gave particulars of what was desired, not all participants had prepared communications comparable with the painstakingly researched contributions of Professor Sheikh Antidiop and Obenga. The Africans at last had done their homework, and those theses, which had once seemed formidable, now shook with the fragility of leaves and the new intellectual wind blowing from the continent. All the time they had had their own way until they had become intellectually flabby. This is one of the things that I have noted. When I was in Arizona some years ago, I had to fight with someone they called an expert on Mexico. And when I opened up on this guy, I realized that I didn't fighting an equal, that he couldn't fight because he'd never fought in his life. We have to fight. We have to fight for every inch of ground. Nothing is yielded to us without this struggle. But they always took it for granted. As my mother used to say, they're born with golden spoons in their mouths. And so when at last he met a fighter, he couldn't fight. When I started on him, I suddenly realized, I said, you know, animals, when they fight like apes, etc., when they're about to overpower you completely and they realize that you are losing, the ape pulls back. Man doesn't usually pull back. And there is something Christian in me which said, you know, you've got him on the ground now, let him go. And there's something devilish in me that said, let him go my foot. <laughs> he has trampled us for sin. These are the kinds of men who have destroyed us for centuries. They are still destroying us. Our children are being destroyed. Don't let him go. The time has come to kick these people. Amen. When the knowledge arises, there is no compromise here because we are dealing with something savage and brutal. It is impossible to become involved in black history without becoming involved in politics. Because to reconstruct the history of black people anywhere in the world, you have to fight against a climate of great prejudice. A white man that I've worked for, if he's alive today, he has uh, he's a liberal with a capital L. His name was Dad Steiner.
of some books on the African people in ancient history. And in the language of the South, he let me down slow. I mean, he spoke kindly. He said, you know, John, I'm, I'm sorry that you came from a race that's made no history. But if you persevere, if you obey laws and study hard, you make history someday. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. In terms of scholarly debates, we know of the work of Sheikh Anti Diop, and he's played an important role in verifying the ethnicity of the ancient Egyptians. Robin, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Professor Sheikh Anti Diop was a scholar from Senegal. And why he's important is that he wrote a book called Nation Negre et Culture, but the English came out as The African Origin of Civilization, Myth or Reality. That book came out in 1974, and because it was now in English, it attracted a very wide interest. In that book, Professor Diop presents essentially part of his doctorate thesis. And his doctorate thesis was not just that the ancient Egyptians were black Africans, but also that other African culture can be related to ancient Egypt in much the same way that European culture is related to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, same idea. Now, what Diop presented was, first of all, he went through the various classical scholars. Now, the classical scholars are the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, and he presented 10 examples where they described the ancient Egyptians. And then if you go through some of the examples, there's an ancient European scholar called Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek scholar. He said the ancient Egyptians had black skins and woolly hair. Lucian says that the ancient Egyptians were too black, then describes them as having thick lips and bandy legs. Other scholars, Diodorus Siculus, suggested that the Egyptians actually descended from the people of what we would now call the Sudan. And when we examine our ten scholars, they paint quite a detailed picture of what did the ancient Egyptians look like. Then Professor Diop went in search of positive proof, and what he did was he had access to a series of mummies that were excavated by a gentleman called Mariette. And the Mariette excavation mummies, Diop removed elements of mummy skin and had that skin examined. Essentially what he was looking for was the evidence of a high quantity of melanin or the absence of a high quantity of melanin. And that way we could work out, are we dealing with Negro skin or non-Negro skin? Diop suggested that all the mummies found at the Marietta excavations. All of them had Negro skin. The next thing then was UNESCO commissioned something called the General History of Africa. That took place in 1974. Now the big sticking point was going to be where is ancient Egypt going to fit into this, these volumes, the General History of Africa? So they called the debate and the debate was called the Cairo Symposium. And at that debate, two scholars presented a case that the ancient Egyptians were Africans, and 18 scholars presented a case that the ancient Egyptians were Europeans, Asians, not Africans. 
the two scholars, Professor Shekhanta Diop and Theophila Benga, won the argument. And if you read the General History of Africa, Volume 2, the debate is in there, and it's really, really funny, just watching two people slaughter 18. Must have been very embarrassing for them. <laughs> it's been so embarrassing that one would have expected that to be sort of common knowledge and someone to do a documentary about it and so on, but for obvious reasons, none of this has happened. I guess that's our job to do. Indeed. Bye. 
How's everyone doing? We're listening to Beast of No Nation by Fela Fela Kuti. His nineteen eighty nine album released after he was thrown into prison on trumped up charges in nineteen eighty four. Amnesty International sought his release upon the grounds of political prisoner being charged with some trumped up charges of currency currency smuggling trumped up charges. And that was his first release song, Beasts of No Nation, which later went on to become a Netflix Netflix movie or series by with Idris Idris Elba Idris Elba and some other marvelous actors. Their names are too difficult for me to recall right now. And of course, the book, Beasts of No Nation, by Uzo Din Ma Iwe Ele. Iwe ala, Iwe ala. Fela was released following the judge's confession that he had been. Oh, it's scanned by too fast. <laughs> Inspiration for the album came while Fela was standing, attending, correction, attending an Amnesty International rally in New Jersey following his release from prison. In his hotel room, Fela had watched a TV appearance by P.W. Bothard, during which he said, quote, This uprising will bring out the beast in us. Fela Kuti, Beasts of No Nation.
as he itemizes the crimes of the accused, Fela's voice shudders with rage. The instrumental backing from a 20-piece Egypt 80 lineup is so powerful, is as powerful as it gets, and a six-piece choir deliver a series of devastating responses, including quote, many leaders as you see them, now different disguises them they or animal in human skin, animal put tile, animal wear agbada, animal put suit or close quote, many leaders as you see them are wearing different disguises, animals in human skin, animals wearing ties, animal wearing African clothing, animals wearing suits. Basketman wants that to leak again. Basketman wants to open my again. I you don't forget to say I sing you. Basketman wants to open my again. I sing you say I go open my mouth like basket you. My land will be a Basketman wants to open my again. The recording sparked one of Lamy's most striking sleeve designs. That's the, the artist, the design, the album jacket, Lamy's most striking sleeve designs, which he wrote which he wrote to me about in 2011 quote in Fela's typical style of naming songs, Beasts of No Nation came with an acronym B-O-N-N, close quote, wrote Lamey. Quote, this is a subtle reference to the capital city of Germany and the days of Adolf Hitler's Nazium. Nazium.
Nazism that was going on in apartheid South Africa at that time. The bestiality of dictatorial rulers was legion and evident across the world, and this was an opportunity for Fela to deal his blow on the global political stage. I heard 